You know, there are so many um, different ways that we react to news that we get. I know this time of year there are Christmas letters that go out, and some of those are wonderful and we catch up, and some of those are, are irritating about little Buffy that's, you know, honor student and, you know, fused chemicals and all kinds of stuff and craziness. But it, it's good to hear news. Sometimes news strikes us a different way. Sometimes it strikes us well, and sometimes it strikes us poorly. News that surprises us or radically alters what is going on in our lives tends to to hit us a certain way. Sometimes we feel immense joy. We know that what is happening is going to make our lives that much better. Other times we feel pain and heartache, and, and we know that there is going to be a significant change or there's some kind of loss. News that's confusing, things that we hear that that we can't quite comprehend, they tend to shake us a little bit and we try to ascertain what does it mean for me and how is it going to affect my life and is there going to be some kind of a personal cost. So I was thinking through this this week, I thought, you know, probably the, the greatest challenge for us in terms of what we hear is when we see the Lord working and we find ourselves directly in the middle of it. We, we're, we're not just an innocent bystander. We're a key player. We're an integral part of something God is doing that's significant. And we're trying to figure out exactly what it means and, and how it's playing out in our lives. I don't know if you've felt that before. I'm sure you have. Where there's that anticipation and that excitement and you're kind of ready for what the Lord's going to do. But there's also a, a nervousness and uncertainty what, what's it going to mean and how is it going to work? How do you react in those situations? Is there fear? Is there anxiety? Is there stress? Or is there a fervent faith and a, and a confidence and anticipation? Well, part of our reaction in those times is determined by the maturity of our faith. How much we've gone forward with the Lord. How much we have become like Him in our thinking. How much we trust in Him. How much we have learned from the experiences that we've had. So much of that shapes our reaction to new news. But that's not always the case. And that's what we see in our text in the morning in Luke chapter 1. It feels a little strange to be doing Christmas when it's like 400 degrees outside. But we'll, we'll go with it. We'll go there. Over the next few weeks, I'd, I'd like to look at the words of some of the key people in the Christmas account. And we're just going to take really one sentence that we highlight each week that defines their thoughts and their their heart and their faith uh, in terms of what the Lord was doing. Now, the purpose of doing this is to ask the Lord to give us a unique insight into what we really believe, how it really defines us, how it dictates uh, how we live. Christmas is a real easy time to become a little spiritually and emotionally calloused. I'm I'm not ready for it. I remember when I was a kid, Christmas was like everything. And not just the presents. I loved all of it. Even living in the South where it never snows and it's like this all the time and you're kind of depressed buying a Christmas tree because it's just too warm, right? But, But Christmas now just kind of drained you how many are already feeling drained by the holiday how many are already yeah you're a little you're just you're just weary and somebody said to me the other day enough already i'm ready for it to be january i'm like wow that's just that's grinch times 12 but i understand 
But Christmas is a time where we can get a little, a little callous, not just because of the, the irrationality of materialism, not just because we're irritated that the holiday becomes more and more secular where it's really not a holy day, but also because we know the account so well that it, that it almost doesn't seem fresh anymore. I've known believers and even pastors who actually don't enjoy celebrating Jesus' birth. Not Christmas, not, not the whole spiel of it. They don't enjoy celebrating Jesus' birth because it's not special to them anymore. They've kind of become jaded about it, about it. It's hard for me to imagine how we get to that place, although it happens. It's especially hard for me to imagine when you look at Luke chapter 1, how you could live during that time and be one of the key people in this whole account about Jesus coming and being born and the reason why he was there and be anything other than overwhelmed with joy. But for the man we're going to look at this morning, that's not really how it was. The man's name was Zacharias, and we see him here in chapter 1 of the book of Luke. Zacharias had all the credentials. If you look at the background of his life in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, you see that not only was he a priest, but he, his wife was a direct descendant of Aaron, who was the first high priest. So he's got that going for him. He comes from a priestly line. He's married to, to a woman who comes from a priestly line herself. The Bible says in verses 5 and 6 that he and his wife were righteous people. They were faithful. They were pleasing to the Lord. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't just flippantly use the words righteous and blameless. So if he's saying that about Zacharias and Elizabeth, it tells us that their love for the Lord and the, the credibility of their purity, their, their character was, was unmistakable. It was unquestioned. People knew what they believed and how they lived and what they were all about. And during the time of this text, and we're going to just go through that because we have a lot to read, we see that Zacharias is at the height of his job. He's been chosen to be the one to go into the temple and to burn incense, which was really the highest honor at this point. And, and even though the, the nation's kind of dull and, and spirituality has kind of wavered, and we'll tell you why in just a second, Zacharias at this point is faithfully serving when there's really kind of no strong reason to do so. This was not a high point spiritually in Israel. This was really a low point. The reason for that is the Lord had been completely silent for 400 years. No prophets, no writing, no miracles, no angels, nothing. And I tried to imagine this week what that felt like, that there was nothing fresh from the Lord. Nobody was really taking his word and expounding upon it. Sure, there were scribes and, and Pharisees and priests, but we know from Scripture and when Jesus comes in, in a little bit, we're going to see this that they were kind of interpreting the law, making it up, uh, making it what they wanted to be to fit their own bias, writing new laws. Everything at this point is kind of stale spiritually. And the Lord hasn't spoken for year after year after year after year after year. For centuries, there's been nothing. After thousands of years of God being so present and so prevalent, in, in Israel's history and working through the kings and sending the prophets when the people rebelled, there's absolutely nothing. So we have to believe 
that spiritual joy is at an absolute low point and there's no sense that anything's about to change. But Zacharias is still serving. And by serving, we have to conclude that he is still uh, thinking about the Lord. He's still anticipating what the Lord's going to do. He's resting on the promises of the Lord. He's thinking about the words of the prophets. He's studying those. He's anticipating that Messiah eventually will come. But there's no sign that it's going to happen. Israel hasn't recovered from the debacle of their captivity. Judah and Israel were both taken away to different places. They've been scattered. They've slowly creeped back. Everything is a mess. But for Zacharias, everything's going great. There's only one problem. The problem is he has a personal heartache. We see this in verse 7. Spirit says that he and Elizabeth had never had children. And in those times, not having children was considered to be a sign that God wasn't blessing you. Not to mention the, the personal difficulty and sadness for them. And they've reached a stage of their life where this is really beyond the expectation. It's beyond logical that this will ever happen. The text says that they were both advanced in age. So the dream of having kids must have, in their hearts, died a long time before. And many times in our lives, we are in a position where we have so many things to be thankful for and so many blessings and so many things that bring us joy. But there's that one thing, there's that thing that nags on us. It's a void or a loss or, or a heartache or some kind of thing that brings us sadness. And we feel like we just can't move past it. I pray this season that God will heal that for you. That God will minister to you based on what you see in these texts. There's nothing to suggest in the text that, that Zacharias and Elizabeth are still kind of emotionally wounded. That the, that, the, that the cut is open. That they're still feeling the pain. It was always there. But there's nothing to suggest that this is that this is strong at this point, or that they can't get past the disappointment. At worst, they're resigned to it. They've learned to live with it. They're somewhat content that that was what the Lord allowed. And at best, verse 13 suggests that they were trusting for the Lord for what He might still do. But what we get, and we'll see this next week because we're going to study Elizabeth, is that is that there's not a sense that she's like Sarah, where where she couldn't, move past her doubt, where she was um, frustrated with what the Lord was doing. And even when the Lord told her, she just, she didn't want to, she didn't want to believe it. But Zacharias is a different story. The Holy Spirit, and we're going to read it in a minute, gives us five verses of detailed information about God's plan, about the importance of the son that's going to be born, about what it all means in the grand scope of eternity, and he lays this out with great clarity and great specificity. But when the Holy Spirit gets done speaking through this angel, Zacharias has a question for the Lord. And the question has seeds of doubt. The question has seeds of hesitation that we need to understand this morning and then hold up against our lives as a point of spiritual examination. Okay, let's start in verse 8. Now it happened that while Zacharias was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot 
to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. And fear gripped him. Remember, there's been nothing for centuries. The angel said to him, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord, and he'll drink no wine or liquor, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It's he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 18 is our key verse. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Then the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, and I am unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled in their, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting, verse 21, for Zacharias, and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Now I want you to notice a couple important details in the passage before we get to the main thoughts because they're really the framework for the insight. I want you to write some things down this morning. Don't just stare at me, not only because it makes me feel insecure, but... but <laughs> Because I want you to interact with the text. Okay, there's a lot here. I just love this text this week. Look at look at the the framework. Look at the foundation for what's about to happen and what we need to learn from the Lord. Okay, look at the setting. We always do this in Bible study. Look at the setting. Look at what people are thinking, what people are feeling. Try to get a picture in your mind of what's going on and and what this looked like. Okay, first start in verse ten. We see there's a huge crowd of people standing outside of the courtyard of the temple as Zacharias go in, goes in. How many know that the Lord loves it? He loves to move when people are gathered to call on his name. He loves it. And what we see here is so unique. We don't know what the people are praying about. We don't even really know why they were here. But I have to believe this was a little bit unusual. God had not spoken for four centuries. It was a spiritually downtime. The religious leaders were corrupt. They were selfish. They were about them uh, about uh, changing the law to adapt. They were about drawing attention and, and, and getting people to notice them. They, were, they had no integrity spiritually. We know that because Jesus calls them a den of snakes. So there's nothing happening spiritually in the nation at this point that, that we could even kind of say, well, well, there's that. There's zero. And yet, for some reason, there's a huge crowd of people that has come to pray. Did, did they sense something? Did the Spirit prompt them to go to the temple that day? We don't know. What we do know is 
that they were there. And they had gathered to cry out to God and to seek his face. Maybe Zacharias just needed the accountability. We don't know. But we know in verse 11 that he goes in and an angel appears on the right side of the altar of incense. Nobody else can see him. The people have no clue what's going on. But it's clear to Zacharias, this is not a dream. This is not something natural. This is a messenger from the Lord. And that's extremely significant because there hasn't been a messenger from the Lord for many, many years. So he's troubled and he's full of fear. Why is this happening? What's going on? Whatever it is, it has to be huge. This changes everything. He's going to be able to go out and say, hey, I know the Lord's been silent, but he just gave us a word. Imagine the, the joy that's mixed with his fear at this sight, that, that the silence of heaven has been broken, that after centuries of rebellion and scattering and captivity and nothing, now the Lord is talking to them again. Only one problem. The angel has a personal message for Zacharias. And that's where we get to verse 13. And verse 13 is very, very interesting. It has a fascinating statement from heaven about the power and the effect of prayer that, that really is a study in itself. I wanted to go down a trail with this, but I knew I couldn't speak for an hour and a half this morning, so we'll do it another time, okay? The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Now, the angel says that the Lord has heard their petition. The word in the Greek essentially means he has heard your appeal and your pleading. Your pleading to answer your prayer. But look back at verse 7 for a second. Elizabeth was barren. They were well past the age of thinking about having kids. And we have to ask, how long had it been since they had actively stopped praying about this? I mean, at some point, you've got to face the reality of the situation, right? Some point, you've got to say, it's done. It's just not going to happen. Our, our, our passion to pray about this and call the Lord and to seek the Lord and, and to plead with him, Lord, please give us a child. I mean, it, it had waned at that point. But here's what we learn about prayer. Oh, I want you to get this. Look at this this morning, verse 13. What we learn about prayer here is the Lord never stops listening and he never forgets what we have asked him to do. Oh, get that church this morning. He never stops listening and he never forgets what we have asked him to do, which tells us that he is looking to see how fervent we are and he is looking to see how much endurance we have to continue to call on his name. How often do we give up too quickly when the answer isn't fast enough and we get discouraged and we say, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and God hasn't worked. And we feel kind of ignored and maybe a little bit defeated. I thought about Zacharias and Elizabeth this week. Had they really stopped asking? 
This wasn't like their 20s and 30s where they pray, oh, Lord, please, we're ready. Please give us a child. It would just be such a blessing. And then they'd go to the doctor. I don't know if you guys are going to be able to have kids. Oh, let's pray more fervently. Oh, Lord, please give us a child through their 20s and their 30s. And then the 40s started to hit. And it started to, I don't know, and then 50s, and then 60s, and then 70s. And now it's, it's beyond the pale. There's, it's not going to happen. Why didn't the Lord just grab a young couple? Why them? What a way for the Lord to not only prove his awesome power, but what a way for the Lord to show how he rewards the faithful perseverance of our prayer. God never stops listening. And he never forgets what you've asked him. We don't know if they were still asking for a child. But the Lord had a record. Oh, this is so good. The Lord had a record of all their prayers. And he had seen their tenacious faith. And he hadn't forgotten. Listen, this study this morning is not necessarily about prayer. But I don't want you to miss this. Maybe the main challenge for you this morning. Maybe the main thing that the Spirit of God wants to say to you. Is that you need to renew your passionate commitment. To ask him to work in a certain area of your life. Or maybe he just wants you to understand how much he values our prayers. We've said it before, but let me say it again. Revelation 5.8 says that heaven contains bowls of incense, which are our prayers. And here we see Zacharias, and he's standing at the altar of incense. Come on, that's not a coincidence, right? He's standing at the altar of incense, and his heart is feeling so many things and all of a sudden, an angel appears and God says to him, I heard your prayers. I've got a record of it. And now I'm going to answer it. And I'm going to answer it in an amazing, powerful way. You're going to have a son. And that son is going to be great in the sight of God. And he's going to be completely set apart for a special work. And you know what? It's going to be so significant that I'm going to fill him with my Holy Spirit even before he's born. And you know what he's going to do, Zacharias? He's going to turn people back to the Lord. And he's going to be a forerunner for the Savior of mankind. And he's going to prepare the people to hear from the Lord. In fact, the one who's coming, Jesus himself, is going to say of your son, he will be the greatest man ever born of a woman. Now that's heady stuff. Any one of those things would be enough where a father would break down and overwhelmed with joy and pride that God would use his son this way. How much more for Zacharias? Not only would he be John's dad, but he would be given a son in a miraculous way. And this was news coming by way of the first message in four centuries. And it was coming to him. How could he be full of anything but praise that God still cared about them. And that this prayer was going to be fulfilled and that his faith was rewarded. And then he and Elizabeth, oh, he couldn't wait to go back and tell her they were going to have a child. 
Oh, miraculous work. And even greater than that, God was sending the Messiah once and for all. But look at his first words of reaction. Verse 18. How will I know this for certain? Let's be clear. That wasn't in any way a request for extra insight about how the facts would be confirmed. This is a statement of doubt. It's it's almost a petulant objection that such a thing couldn't possibly be true. It's almost mocking. Well, I hear what you're saying, angel, but, but we got some problems here. Got some obstacles that you don't seem to realize. Guess what? My wife and I are old. We're kind of past time. That's that's the attitude that's here. Like the Lord doesn't know about the obstacles. Have you ever prayed and you think to yourself, I can't believe I just told the Lord the circumstances. He already knows them. Why am I telling him, here are the obstacles, Lord? He already knows what's going on. But we make such a huge deal about them and act like it's the end of the world. And God, you can't possibly manage this, let alone overcome it. And and Lord, I need to remind you because I'm a little annoyed that you've allowed this into my life. And uh, uh, Listen, God didn't call us to pray that way, but that's the way Zacharias responds. How am I going to know this for certain? See, my wife and I are, are kind of old. And the time's really come and gone. Why did he doubt? Everything about his doubt is a contradiction from who he was and what he knew to what he's saying. And the fact that he's not trusting the Lord. That's what doubt does. Doubt creates a discrepancy in our heart and mind, an inconsistency between what we know and what we believe, and how we respond to God's work. If you look back at the text, those words for certain, how will I know this for certain? If you have uh, italics in your Bible, that tells you that those words aren't in the original text. But the interpreters did a very good job of accurately capturing the reality of his question. So what's Zacharias saying? He's saying, I believe it could be true. I believe it might be true. I I hope maybe it will be true. But I don't believe it is true. Even though the Lord says this is going to happen, Zechariah says, well, coulda, woulda, shoulda, maybe, hopefully, possibly, under the right circumstances, that'd be really cool. But no, I don't believe this is going to happen. That is the line between doubt and trust. And sometimes it seems very nuanced. Like, oh, it's just a little thing and I'm just struggling. The fact is that it is definitively centered on how fully we believe the word of the Lord and his promises. Psalm 1830 says, the way of the Lord is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 33, 4 says, the word of the Lord is upright 
and all his work is done in faithfulness. In other words, if the Lord says something is true, it is true. No equivocation, no question, no, no debate, no, well, let me, let me, let me bear it out. No, if the Lord says it, it's true, but our doubt fights that. And our doubt fights it aggressively, even when we're walking with the Lord like Zacharias was. In fact, there are five things I want to give you real quickly that we learn about doubt in this account that should cause us to doubt our doubt. When you feel doubt about the word of the Lord, when you feel doubt about the work of the Lord, the first reaction as a mature believer or as a growing believer needs to be, I'm going to doubt that doubt. I'm not going to believe the lies and the accusations and the doubt and the faithlessness that the enemy is trying to breed in my heart. If God has says he's going to do something, if it's in his word, if he's leading me, then I'm going to follow that. But let's see how doubt fights that. Look at verse 18, first of all. First thing doubt does is it argues against what we know from the Lord. Doubt argues against what we know from the Lord. Now, Zacharias is told without equivocation, this is going to happen. Five verses, God gives specifics, God names names, God tells him what's going to happen, God names everything that he needs to know, and even more. The Lord says, I will make this happen. This is not a question. This is not conditional. You don't have to do this for it to take place. I'm about to do this work. But Zacharias hesitates to believe it, and then he presents reasons why he won't believe it. Spiritual hesitation is rarely cautious prudence. Spiritual hesitation, more often than not, and this is hard to say and hard to believe, but it's true, Spiritual hesitation, more often than not, is resistant rebellion. It's not just, well, Lord, I, I don't know what's uncertain. Let me examine the facts. Let me, let me pray a little bit more. Listen, let's not try to fake God with spirituality, okay? If he says it, it's true. If he says it, it's to be trusted. If he says it, it's to be obeyed. If he leads, we follow. There's no debate about this. So when we say, well, Lord, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to move forward, we're not just saying, I need more evidence or I, or I want to be really careful. We're saying, I don't want to. There's really no nice way to put it. When we doubt the Lord or we're hesitant to believe his promises, and this is always matched up with worry and fear, what we're doing is actually arguing against God's word. And it may not always be dramatic like this. In fact, it probably rarely will. But the subtle times are even more dangerous. I caught myself doing this last night. I was driving home from here. We had been working and preparing. And I was really, really struggling. And I'm not a big worrier. But I was really struggling with being worried about some very legitimate issues. And I was trying to rationalize how it's going to work out. And I was just like, oh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work it doesn't match i don't i don't know what to do and i'm telling you i'm not being weird the spirit of god said to me as i'm driving my car um do you remember what you're preaching about tomorrow um yeah doubt i think maybe i'll change my text <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like I heard a voice or anything. I'm not, I'm not, 
I'm telling you, right in my mind, and I'm really struggling. I'm, I'm like really. And the Lord just said, what are you preaching about tomorrow? And even though the circumstances didn't change one iota in that moment, my whole perspective did. And I remembered the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. And I was completely relieved of the concern. The concern's not gone. It's still there. The devil reminded me of it later. And when I woke up this morning and on my way to church. But God, what are you preaching about? Can I do it or not? What what are you going to believe, Paul? What are you going to believe, church? What are you going to believe, believer, this morning? Uh, Can God do it or not? If he says he's going to do it, he'll do it. And here's the second level of doubt. The second level of doubt, and this is back in the end of verse 18, is doubt questions whether the Lord can actually do what he says. See, this is different from number one because it doesn't just mistrust God's word. Now it mistrusts his ability. And we're in very hazardous territory when we go beyond wondering if the Lord is faithful to keep his word to start to wondering, I wonder if God can actually do it. Just in case we don't think it happens to us, this is a man that the Holy Spirit describes in verse 6 as righteous and blameless in God's sight. But he says, how will I know for certain? In other words, prove it. You want to know how you know for certain? God said it. There, done, end of discussion. If you don't want to believe this book, I mean every single word that's inspired by God and given by the Holy Spirit through the people that wrote it. If you don't want to believe every word, don't believe any of it. This is God's word. What he has said is true. But here's the third problem with doubt. It undercuts our faith. Zacharias had done so many things right, but all of that was short-circuited by his doubt. The resume didn't matter. The background didn't matter. The credentials didn't matter. Standing in the temple serving God didn't matter because he was not going to believe the direct word of the Lord. And the angel confirms it in verse 20 after telling Zacharias the fourth problem with his doubt. Doubt indicates that we have forgotten who the Lord is. Gabriel's words in verse 19 are both powerful and chilling. Every time I read it, I get excited and scared at the same time. Gabriel stands before him, the messenger of God, and says to this priest, who is kind of a little bit defiant. He's a holy man, but he's just, he's not going to believe the word of the Lord. He's looking at the obstacles. And Gabriel stands before him and says, I, Gabriel, I stand in the presence of the Lord. You can almost hear his voice rising as, as he communicates the reminder of the awesome majesty and power of the Lord and the fact that nothing is impossible with God. You want to debate with me? I stand in the presence of the Lord every moment of every day. And you want to tell me it can't happen? 
Listen, I serve God. I've seen God. I can tell you, he can do whatever he needs to. He tells you, uh, listen, he just said, Gabriel, go down there and talk to Zacharias. He's in the temple right now. Go appear to him and tell him what I'm about to do and give him a son. I'm just here to be the messenger. You want to debate me, take it up with God. Because I stand in his presence. See, sometimes God has to reprimand the impertinence of our disbelief. By saying, do you know who I am? Uh, okay, stop for a second. Do you know who I am? And listen, this doesn't always have to be harsh. This is not always discipline and trial and, and raising his voice. How many know that sometimes we're reminded of God when we get into his presence? And we start to pray and we start to worship and we have a conversation and somebody says, oh, let me tell you how the Lord works. And we remember his goodness. Or somebody gives us a word of encouragement. Or we sit and watch lightning. Or we look up and we see the immensity of the stars. And we realize that's this much of the universe. And we look at it and we say, God, I am so small. And you are so great and so wonderful. Lord, I've forgotten you. How awesome. Doubt robs us. It pulls that away. It says, don't remember who the Lord is. Just get into yourself. And that's what Zacharias does. And he does this. God sends this message. We're done. Because doubt has a cost. Number five. Doubt robs us of our joy. Think about this again. Zacharias and Elizabeth are getting what they have longed for, pleaded with God about, prayed for, sought with tears, hurt over, felt pain over for years and years and years. They have given up and God comes and says, I'm going to give you a son and it's not any son. This child will be a spectacular example of the goodness and mercy of God to all people. But instead of overwhelming, incomprehensible, dance up and down joy, Zacharias feels almost disillusioned. Like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Elijah, he says, how can I be sure? Listen, I experienced that last night and you may be experiencing it this morning. You may not believe that God really loves you. You may not believe that God is really willing to forgive your sins when you confess them and renounce them. You may not believe this story of Christmas that God would send his son born of a baby who would live a life and then die on a cross for your sins. I mean, come on, Rhodes. It sounds outlandish. You may not believe it, but I'm telling you, you can be sure this morning that the love and mercy of God is real. And you can sit there and doubt and say, well, I'm skeptical and prove it. I can't prove it. This is by faith. But I'm telling you, it's real. You ask people in this room whose lives have been changed. It is real. 
You may not believe that God can provide your needs right now. And some of you are hurting. That, 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 that you don't, God's not sufficient. I, I've tried, Paul. I'm trusting. I'm at my breaking point. I, I don't know how to pray anymore. You may be there. But I'm telling you this morning, God says, I will never see my righteous, the righteous people begging. I will take care of them. You think, you think the flowers are pretty. You think the snowflakes are amazing because they're all there. Listen, you're so much more valuable than that. I, I got so many more plans for you than for the snowflakes. They're going to fade away. They're going to melt. You're not going to melt. You're mine. Or you may not believe that God keeps his promises. That he'll fulfill what he says. That he has plans that exceed what we can imagine. But I'm telling you this morning, he does and he will. You know why the Lord disciplined Zacharias with silence? Because sometimes he needs to stop our talking. Complaining, contesting, questioning, even just wondering, well, Lord, what are you doing? Listen, God is not interested in our talking. God is interested in our faith. He is not interested in, well, Lord, how am I going to know? And I can't see it. I did that last night. How am I going to know, Lord? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't match up. And God said, really? No, really, Paul? Really? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Have you not seen me be faithful again and again and again and again? And it's like I just got, okay. Done questioning. Done asking. You're the Lord. I'm not. When we see through the eyes of faith, everything changes. Look at two more verses. We'll pray. Verse 77. John's been born. Zacharias can't talk, so all the family and the in-laws get involved. You know how fun that was. They all want to name the baby. They're all saying, we're going to call him Zacharias like his dad. It says Zacharias grabs a tablet. I think that was the first iPad. And he does what the angel had told him to do. He says, no, the baby's name is John. The moment he writes the baby's name in John, he's able to speak. And starting in verse 67, the text says that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to praise God in a powerful way. But it's his words in verses 77 to 78 that really stand to me. Read this passage later, okay? After the tea, after you're tired, you just need a little encouragement. Read this passage later. But look at verse 77. He says, Lord, you're going to work to give your people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Think now, he doesn't talk about how hard things were, how bitter he was that he couldn't speak, how frustrating it was that while his wife was pregnant, he couldn't communicate. Why did God do this? All I had was a simple question. What, why does the Lord work? None of that. All he can say, and he's waited nine months to say it, is God, you are full of tender mercy, and you save and forgive those people all people of their sins when they trust you. The only thing he has to say. Isn't it amazing how quickly doubt changes to praise when our perspective is right? When we're focused on the Lord and his goodness and his faithfulness and his love and sufficiency, everything changes. 
because the word of the Lord is sure and his promises are certain. We sang it. Did you believe it? More than amazing. More than amazing. I mean, we sang that 15, 30, I don't know how many minutes ago. It doesn't matter. What's the point? The point is, did we believe that or was that just, oh, that's the next song we're supposed to sing? Forever our God, you're more than enough. Oh, how many know that's true? You're more than enough. I mean, you're so far past comprehension of what enough would be. More than amazing. You trust it? What do you need to believe him for this morning? What is he asking you to believe? Let's close our eyes. Doubt creates all kinds of confusion, conflict, questioning. We start to get weird in our thinking. We start to get weary in our emotions. We start to question what we know is true. We start to look at the obstacles more than what God calls us to trust in by faith. Amen. Maybe that's you this morning. I don't know who this word is for. I pray for somebody this morning. What is God calling you to trust him for? Maybe it's your salvation. Maybe you're here this morning. You don't know Christ as your savior. I'm telling you right now, this is the morning. Today's the day. Put your confidence in him. Trust him. Believe what God has done. There is no reasonable, logical alternative, and you will spend your life looking for it, and you'll never find it. Christ died for your sins. And when you trust him, when you turn from sin, and you trust him to forgive you and save you, he will do it forever. That is a fact. Maybe you trust struggling to trust him and you're, you're doubting because of circumstances and pain. I know there's pain. I'm not trying to minimize that. But the Lord is calling you to the next level of faith. Faith you never thought you'd get to. Stretching you never imagined was possible. But that's what God's calling you to because he loves our faith. Maybe God wants you to start praying for something that you've kind of stopped praying for. You've, you've just kind of lost hope. He's stirring you this morning. I don't know what it is. But between you and the Lord right now. Take that to him and say, Lord, this is it. You've convicted me. You've told me this morning. You've showed me. I can't deny it. I bring this to you and I ask you. Do a fresh work in my life. Strip away the doubt. And to give me faith. Nine months, Zacharias thought about that question that he asked. The last words he spoke for three quarters of a year, questioning God. Lord, this morning I pray you would work in our hearts and our minds. We know how easily, Lord, Doubt and hesitation and fear and worry can creep in. 
But Lord, what better time of year to be reminded of how faithful and how good you are. That you would love us. That you would send Emmanuel. That he would come. Lord, not because we deserved it, not because we asked for it, but because you love us. Lord, stir our hearts even today. Challenge us on what is resistant. And Lord, give us the strength and the courage and the confidence to walk by faith every single day, trusting you fully for what you're going to do. Lord, we trust you for tonight. You're going to do a great work tonight. You're going to do a great work in this room tonight. We pray with confidence that you would use us. Lord, as a first step of knowing that you are faithful and that you want to change lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that we can pray with absolute unwavering confidence knowing that you will be faithful. We praise you in Jesus' name.